Hi, I'm Sue Alphys from the blog Stories of an Unschooling Family. Welcome to my podcast. This is episode 36, and today I'd like to talk about learning to write. But before I get on to that, I'd like to talk about the youngest child in the family. Our youngest child in the family is Gemma Rose, and she's 11 years old. Her next oldest sibling is Sophie, who's 14, and it's Gemma Rose and Sophie that I write the most about on my unschooling blog. My stories tend to center around them. Occasionally, I would talk about Charlotte, who is 17, and Imogen, who's 20, but yes, most of their Posts are centered around upper primary and lower high school learning. But if you dig deeper into my blog, you'll find stories that I wrote when Gemma Rose was about five or six years old. So there's stories about learning to write and learning to read and the beginning of the official school years of her life. Somebody left a comment on my blog not so long ago asking me about those earlier years. And so I thought that I would chat about them a little and maybe dig out some of those old posts. Remember what it was like to have a child in early primary school years. And so that's why I want to talk about learning to write today. Now, Gemma Rose holds a unique position in our family, the youngest child, the baby of the family. Is that a privileged position to hold? I was the eldest sibling growing up in my own family and I used to look at my two younger sisters and my younger brother and I used to think they had it a lot easier than I did. I was a guinea pig child. Yes, sometimes I yearned to be one of the younger ones. I thought the baby was the favoured position. Yes, so many times I I would have liked to have been the baby. And I guess a lot of people think that the youngest child is the spoilt child of the family. Well, I've since changed my mind about all that, observing my own family and Gemma Rose in particular, and hearing a few stories about other youngest children. I have have realized that being the youngest in the family is not all it's cracked up to be. Oh, yeah, it's a great position in some ways, but it does come with its own problems. Now, I have a story to tell you about a lady who was 80 at the time that she told me this story. She she is the baby of her family uh, with, I'm not sure how many older siblings, maybe about eight older siblings. And she was telling me that her next sibling up didn't welcome her into the family when she was born. Her next eldest sibling wanted to be the baby of the family herself, and she resented the fact that her mother had yet another baby. And all through their lives, there's been a bit of conflict about this. The older sister never came to terms with the fact that she was no longer the baby. And my friend, her name is Jane, tells me that it was really quite hard being the baby, and it's become harder and harder as her siblings have grown up. She is watching them die one after another. I think at the moment she has either one or two siblings left alive, including the older sister who res- who resented her birth. And even though she is 80, she is having to look after those two older siblings because she is the youngest, and uh, it falls to the youngest to look after the oldest when you get old. So she's driving around up and down to the 
the city looking after these two older siblings because she is the youngest, even at 80. And so I think about what life will be like for Gemma Rose as the family gets older. There's 17 years between her and our first child, Felicity. That, that's, quite, that's quite sad in itself for the fact that Felicity left home when Gemma Rose was only one year old. So they have never really lived together in the same family. Gemma Rose has no memories of Felicity living at home. And Felicity really has only ever been home for little visits here and there over those past 10 years since she left home. And I guess they don't know each other very well, certainly not as well as the siblings who have grown up and are still living together. All Gemma Rose's older siblings grew up in a house where the family was expanding. There were new babies born some years, and that's very exciting for children to have a new baby in the family. In our house, the baby was always passed around and played with and shown off to friends. I've got a baby brother. I've got a baby sister. It was always a wonderful time to have a baby in the family. Very exciting, even though very busy years with, with new babies and toddlers and older children. There was always something going on. Always exciting, loud and noisy and a lot of fun. But Gemma Rose is growing up in a house where the family is decreasing in size. I think she's very fortunate still to have the amount of siblings at home that she does have. We've still got five children at home. It could very well be that she only had has two older siblings at home, but the older ones have lingered on because of study, because it costs too much to live away from home when you're studying. No grants are available these days as they were when I was their age, we got a free education and we were able to live away from home. Yes, we got an allowance to do that. Things have all changed these days and studying away from home is too expensive. So our older ones have lingered at home, which has benefited Gemma Rose tremendously. She, she knows them very well and they have the delights of growing up with her as well. But yes, there are some good points of being the youngest sibling. And the biggest one I can think of is that you've got a more experienced mother. My daughter Felicity was the guinea pig child. I remember when she was born, leaving the hospital with her, and I was just so amazed that the nurse put her in my arms and waved us goodbye, and I was allowed to walk out of the hospital door with her and take her home. And all I could think of was, She's such a precious child, and they're letting me take her home, and I know nothing about being a mother. How can this be? Are they really going to let me take her home? Of course they did, and of course I had to muddle my way through those early months and years of mothering. I made a lot of mistakes, and Felicity had to bear them all, being our eldest child. Sometimes I feel a little guilty about this. I think she had the inexperienced mother, and she must have suffered because of this. She didn't get the gentle mother. She got the mother who didn't know what she was doing. She got the mother who had, didn't have much patience. The mother who valued things that weren't very important and forget about the important things. And I'm really surprised that she survived me. One day I was wondering how Felicity thought of me, looking back. Does she wish that she had the more experienced mother? Does she look back at her childhood and have bad memories thinking, golly, I got there, the dragon mother, instead of the gentle mother, I really missed out. 
One day I shared these thoughts with Felicity, and she said, "No, Mum, I had a really wonderful childhood, and I want to be just like you," which has made me feel so thankful because I know that I was a terrible mother, and it just goes to show that love can cover up everything. And she has forgiven me for all those mistakes that I made as she was growing up. Some mistakes. I don't think they're as important as we think. As long as we love and we can talk about things with our children, I think our children do accept that. But anyway, Jim Rose, I feel, does get the better deal. I'm a totally different person now than I was when Felicity was a small child. I don't worry about food. I don't make her clear her plate. I don't jump up and down if、uh, she doesn't like what I've cooked her. I don't worry about what she wears, even though I do buy her nice clothes and we do enjoy dressing up. I don't jump up and down again, saying, "How can you wear that? We're going out." I don't really notice what she wears. If she makes a mistake or she spills something in the kitchen, I don't rush out and yell at her like I would have done with Felicity. Yeah, I don't know why, but maybe I've realised these things aren't important, or perhaps I'm just not paying attention these days. Got too old to be bothered about it all. There's one more negative I feel about being the youngest child, and that is Gemma Rose has grown up far too quickly. She always seems to be racing to keep up with her older siblings. I remember how she gave up playing with dolls at a far too early age and dressing up. She used to love dressing up—big box full of dress-up clothes—and I was always putting in things into the box for her, like broken glasses, watching out for things that she might enjoy playing with. And then one day, far too early, she just stopped playing dress-ups because it wasn't much fun playing on her own, and she could no longer persuade any of her older siblings to play with her, which I think is rather sad. So no dress-ups, no dolls, and she has turned to the things that the older ones are doing. Of course, all the other children in our family had a younger sibling to play with, so when the older one got fed up with playing with dolls. Or dress-ups, they just turned to the younger sibling and played with them instead. But of course, Gemma Rose doesn't have a younger sibling. Now, some of the things that Gemma Rose is doing, which I feel is because she has older siblings, are such things as writing and listening and watching Shakespeare. Those types of things that I wouldn't probably wouldn't have thought to introduce Felicity to. At such an early age, and I'm talking of an age of about five or six, Jim Rose is watching the older ones be involved in that sort of thing, and wanting to participate herself. And so this leads on to learning to write. Last week and the week before, in my podcast, I was talking about Nano Rimo, National Novel Writing Month, and how three of my girls have been writing novels during the month of July. They chose their own word goals, and they've had thirty-one days to write a novel of that many words. And today's the last day of the month, and all three of them have finished. Now, Sophie reached her total of fifty thousand words, even though she struggled, not because she didn't want to write, but because there was a lot of other things that she wanted to do as well, and she kept getting distracted. She also hasn't been very well this week, and 
she had to do a, a quick burst of writing over the last couple of days to get to her 50,000 words. Imogen got to 70,000 words, so she's really happy. But the surprise of all is Gemma Rose. She is still writing today. She's still got today, but she is over 80,000 words. So she has outwritten her 20-year-old sibling. And this is, I feel, really quite remarkable. How many adults can write a novel of 70,000 words, let alone an 11-year-old child? And I feel she's done that because of the example of those around her. She's grown up with writers. It's just what we do. And she never thought she couldn't write. It was just what people were doing in the family, and she thought she would have a go as well, and they encouraged her along. And she has been writing for years now. She's done, done NaNoWriMo and Camp NaNoWriMo a number of times. I think the first time she participated with was when she was about seven. So seven, four years, I think, that she has been writing for National Novel Writing Month. I have always pondered the question, do children learn to love writing because of the example of the people around them? Or is it something built into them? Do they have an inbuilt talent for writing? Something that, that is within them? And can we encourage non-writers to become writers by doing certain things? Now, one of the most frequent questions I do get asked is, how do we encourage children to become writers? I suppose people look at our family and we're always writing. Did we do anything special or is it just because we are, we were born writers? So I've put together a few little pointers, which I hope will be helpful. I don't know if it'll turn non-writers into writers, but I don't think it hurts to encourage children to become writers. So here goes for some of my pointers. I think it's important if we want children to write, that we write ourselves. It's no good going off and saying, please go and write something. I think this is the same for most things that we want our children to do. We can't just go and tell them, please go and do the chores. Please go and learn some maths. Please go and do this. I think that anything that we would like them to do, we have to be willing to do ourselves and to share that experience with them if they're reluctant. Of course, some things children will be quite happy to go off and do by themselves. But if there is any reluctance, uh, they could just turn around and say, why do I have to do it? You don't have to do it. And I guess parents could just say, well, I'm the parent and you're the child. And I've said that myself in the past. That's the view I had as um, an early mother, that there were certain things children had to do and parents didn't have to do. And I used to say such things as, I've had my education, I've done it all, it's your turn now, you have to do this, which I think is really quite wrong. That's not the way to give a child a love of learning. I think that we are lifetime learners, and to look at learning and to give our ch children the view that learning is something only school children do, and they have to do it, will not give them a love of learning. It is counterproductive. We have to show them that, yes, learning is really exciting and parents would like to do it as well and children then pick up on that excitement and maybe they'd like to come and learn as well. So back to writing. I think it's important that we read to our children. I saw a quote on some blog this morning, I can't remember the words exactly, but it was something along the lines of how can we write if we don't read? I think children need to hear good examples of writing. 
And this can be any sort of writing, picture books, novels, poetry, non-fiction, magazines, even comics. I think comics are a great thing to have. They're great fun and they're not an inferior form of writing at all. I think the same thing applies to adults. Adults need to keep reading all sorts of things as well for their own sake. And children need to see adults reading as well as writing. Now, all my children have been inspired to copy their favorite authors or to want to write stories like those that they love at various points in their lives. So we've had phases like when Gemma Rose wrote mermaid stories after mermaid stories and then she had to go up writing princess stories. I guess school children might write school stories. When I was younger and I went to school, I always wanted to write stories like Enid Blyton's school stories. And I think this is a great place to start, to imitate those people that we admire and those works that we admire. Later on, children do branch out and adults as well and go off and develop their own style. But there's nothing better than learning from other people. Yeah, learn the basics from the people that you admire. We often have lively discussions about anything and everything. We have it over the dinner table in the family room while we're sitting and relaxing together with coffee, in the car as we're driving, driving along. We talk anywhere, having a picnic over the picnic table. And yes, we talk about things that excite us, ideas that we have, and we listen to each other. And I think these discussions are important if we want our children to write, because talking can turn into writing. We all need something to write about. You can't sort of sit down and say, well, I want to write, but I have no ideas. But quite often when we're sitting around the table having a bit of a joke together or having a discussion about something, a writing idea will come into my mind and I will leave the table immediately after dinner and I will either jot the note down in my notebook about what I would like to write about or I even will open my computer and start writing straight away while the idea is fresh. So yes. Children need things to write about. You say, go and write something and their mind is blank. But when you have lots of ideas in your mind, what to write about is never a problem. Of course, there comes times where you do have blank periods, and I think that's a time for reading. So now and then I have a lean period where I can't come up with any ideas that excite me for blog posts, say. I might have lots of ideas in my notebook, but none of them actually grab me. And then I know it's time to go and do some reading, relax, go and do something different instead of writing. And the ideas will return at a later time. I think maybe this is the same with children. Maybe they can't write on demand. And it's all right to have times where they're reading and doing other things and they'll come back later on and write. Jim Rose hasn't written a blog post for quite some weeks now, but I know one day she'll think, oh, look, I want to record that. I want to remember that. Oh, I have this idea. I might write a blog post. And then she'll say to me, Mom, I've sent you a blog post for you to look at because what she does is she writes her blog posts and then she emails them to me. We have a look at them together because I've got to post it on her blog for her because she has doesn't have a Google account of her own because she's under 13. So it all has to come through my account. And yes, I will be sometimes very surprised to find that she's actually written a blog post. Whereas Sophie will write a blog post practically every day or every second day for a long time. And then one day she'll say, oh, I have had enough. I can't think of anything else to write about. Give her a little break and inspiration will return.
Yeah, I think pressuring children to write is probably counterproductive. It can lead to frustration on both sides. Children don't feel like writing, got nothing to write about, and the parent is pushing. They're not going to write. So I think, yeah, step back, leave them alone. talk a little about the mechanics of writing. Of course, if you want to write, spelling comes into it, grammar, handwriting, if you're writing on paper. And these can look a big chore to a child. Worrying about spelling turns writing into a chore. It slows down writing and it dampens the creative urge. There's a two or three posts on my blog about spelling because I once asked Gemma Rose if she'd like to do a spelling course, one of these fancy online things I thought she might enjoy. And she turned around and full of confidence said, no, thank you, mum. And I asked her, well, how are you going to learn to spell? And she said, well, I'll just pick it up as I go along, mum. And that's exactly what she did. I didn't teach her how to spell. I said to her one day, you picked it up as you went along, but how did you do it? She says, well, mum, I read a lot. I know what words look like. I know when they're not spelt right. They don't look right. And I guess this is another good thing about reading a lot is because, yeah, children pick up the patterns of spelling. Sophie did do a spelling course online for a very short period of time. It was one of my not-so-good ideas. It didn't last very long because, because these days, even though I might make mistakes, I've got better at turning around and admitting those mistakes and letting go of ideas. In the old days, I might have hung on to an idea for much longer and caused a lot more problems. But yes, so Sophie did this spelling course a few weeks, maybe. And one thing she said to me about it was, I'm learning all these words, mum, but they're not staying in my head because I'm not using them. Why do I need to learn how to spell these words? These are not the words that I want to know how to spell. And as our children have been writing, those are the words they've learned to spell. They have picked it up as they have gone along. One day I was looking over Gemma Rose's shoulder at something she was writing. I think it was one of these NaNoWriMo events that she was doing. I think it was called Script Frenzy, where she was writing a, a, a play. They no longer have Script Frenzy. This was a few years ago when there was an option to write a play during one of the months of the year. And I looked over her shoulder and I said, oh, wow, that's all spelt correctly. When did you learn to spell? She just uh, picked it up as she went along. And and a child is perfectly capable of doing that. And if they don't do that, if their spelling doesn't improve, I don't think that's a big deal either. I once talked to someone from the education department about spelling. And even though we worry about what our authorised people might say about our children's skills such as spelling and he was an authorized person it was very refreshing to hear him say that spelling is no sign of intelligence but some people are just not wired that way they're just not spellers and he he told me a few stories about people who had organized themselves so that somebody else did the spelling for them they came up with all the wonderful ideas they wrote things down and then they gave their documents to somebody else who transformed the spelling. These days we can do that with spell checker as well, though that's not absolutely perfect. The other thing is that when children need to spell, such as when they get to university and it's embarrassing for them not to spell, be able to spell, 
Sometimes that's the motivator for them to learn how to spell, and this is what happened with our second child, Duncan. He was a terrible speller until he had to participate in online forums, and then miraculously, he learned to spell. My next point is don't worry about backward letters or poor handwriting. These can improve with time, and I've experienced both these. I would go as far as to say don't worry about cursive writing either. Chimeras can't write cursively. She's 11 years old. Some people might be um, shocked by that. She is not interested in running writing, as she calls it. And the more I try and push her to learn it, the more she digs her heels in and says she doesn't want to learn it. There's been a few reports in the news recently about schools who are giving up cursive writing lessons. They're not going to insist that children learn to write cursively anymore. Instead, they're going to have typing lessons but to reflect the change in technology. A lot of traditional people are jumping up and down and saying children are going to be losing a valuable skill. Well, that may, may be, but I think that we can all learn to write cursively at any time of our lives. So if Gemma Rose wants to learn how to write cursively, this is not her one and only chance. She can teach herself anytime she likes, even as an adult. And I don't think that she's going to be disadvantaged if she can't do it. She's not disadvantaged at the moment. She's a really fast typer. She's taught herself to type. And she can print nice and neatly if she has to write anything by hand. So I'm quite happy with that. My next point comes on to that. Let children use a computer if they don't want to write by hand. And when Duncan was about six years old, he used to love writing stories, but he he wasn't very good at writing. So I got him an old typewriter from a second-hand shop. He loved it. This was the days before we had a computer, and he used to bang out all his old, all his stories on this old typewriter, story after story after story, some wonderful stories. I couldn't read any of them because I couldn't understand his spelling, but he knew what they said. And I do remember showing the authorised person some of these stories and giggling over the fact that both of us couldn't understand them. But we did recognise that he had a lot of stories inside his head and his skills would only ever improve so that he could share them with people that he wanted to share them with. And I think that's also a motivation to learn to spell is so that other people can read our work. Children do get to the point where they want us to read things and so they might be motivated to spell their work a little better. And if children are too young to write or to type on a computer, they can always dictate. So I, th I think there's nothing wrong with a child telling a, a mother a story and getting the mother to type it up for them. It's more important to nurture creativity than it is to worry about the mechanics of writing. And children don't have to write stories. Older children don't have to write essays. Writing can take many forms, letters, stories, emails, poems, comic strips, magazine articles, shopping lists, journal entries. There's so many different ways that we use writing. We don't all have to write in the same way. I have spoken before about my girls, older girls, who never wrote essays as they were going through their high school years, but they did write and their main form of writing has been novel writing and also blog post writing. And that was more than sufficient preparation for writing university essays. When we can look out for real 
life opportunities for writing rather than set exercises. Chimarez always loves to write out the shopping list for me. They can write inside birthday cards. Chimarez feels it's a privilege if she gets the job of writing in the birthday card for a joint greeting from us all. And writing is a serious business. I mean, that sounds like schooly, that it's exercises, but that's not what I mean. What I mean is that it's valued work. So if a child has written something, we should take it seriously. It's real, it's something that they've put th themselves into and it should be valued. Children aren't learning to be writers, they are writers. Like everybody, we continue to learn more about writing. I have no more got to the end of learning to write than Gemma Rose has. I still have a heap to learn. Maybe she has more to learn than me, but we're still on the writing pathway. And I don't think we'll ever get to the end of it, because if we do, our writing will become stale. There's always something more to learn about writing, and I guess we're never actually totally satisfied with the writing that we produce, because as we look back at past pieces of writing, we can always find things that we want to improve, which can be frustrating at times, but also exciting because we can see other ideas that we never saw at the time when we were writing. And because writing is a serious business, and we value our children's writing, we should take the time to read it. So when they come up and say, could I read this to you, Mum? Or would you like to read my story? If our children's writings are, are offered for sharing, we should should take that time to sit down and treat them seriously, read them. And if the spelling prevents us from reading them, we should ask our child to read them out loud for us. We should comment positively, I think, and not criticise. I hate my writing to be criticised. It doesn't feel very good when someone pulls apart something that I have put a lot of effort and a lot of thought into. I've spilt myself into it, and then someone criticises it. It doesn't feel very nice at all. And as an adult, I can deal with that. That's just part of being part of the adult world and listening to people's criticisms and taking them on board and improving. But I think it puts children off, that they're too young to deal with that and they might be put off for life if we are too critical. This doesn't mean that we can't share things that we learn about writing and quite often we will sit down and discuss various elements of writing and you have writing discussions, how we use particular things in within our writing, how we use the colon for example, how we open an essay or a blog post. What's the best way? What should we say in the very first few sentences of a blog post to capture people's imagination? How can we improve the description of a character? What is the best way to write some dialogue? These are all very interesting things that we sometimes talk about together as writers. And even though we don't, I don't set exercises and say, look, go away and write a good opening to a blog post. Sometimes my children do go away and practice that very thing. And sometimes I do as well. And sometimes we'll agree to all go away and practice an opening sentence. It's not something that we have to do. It's something as writers that we want to do so we can improve and share. My last point is save a child's writings. I have boxes of my children's writings, all their early stories, all their early poems. Some of them are really wonderful to look back on. I put them in a folder or a box, and I treat them as very special. 
I think they are a real treasure. And because I value them, it shows to my children that I value their their writing and what they have produced. So there's some of the things that I would share with anybody who says, how can I encourage my children to write? I would try all those things. Of course, they might not work. And the reason I think that they might not work is because maybe a child just is not interested in writing. But we all have different talents, and maybe it does come down to the fact that we are all different, and we can try and set up the ideal conditions to encourage our children to write. And of course, they need a certain level of writing skills to get through life. So encouraging them to write in a way that is enjoyable for them might produce that. But to go beyond that, children might not be enthusiastic about writing lots of stories. They might only want to learn the basics. They might only want to learn enough writing skills to get them through life. And that's okay, because they might have other talents. We're writers, but, you know, we're not scientists. I haven't got many skills with my hands. There's so many things that I don't know about and I'm not interested in. And so why should everybody be interested in writing just because I am? And so I think it comes down to accepting our children and the talents that they have. So back to NaNoWriMo or Camp NaNoWriMo and Gemma Rose and her 80,000 words. I once interviewed Gemma Rose about writing when she was nine years old. I talked to Gemma Rose about the novel that she was writing at the time. I can't remember all the questions I asked her, but the video is on YouTube if anyone is interested in watching it. I thought I might actually interview her again at age 11 and see and see what her ideas about writing are now. Or maybe even I could even interview her as part of a podcast. So like normal, I'll hunt out a few blog posts that are related to this topic about youngest children and learning to write. If you'd like to read them, they'll be on my blog. I put the links in the program notes on my blog, Stories of an Unschooling Family. If you would like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do that through iTunes or follow it through Podbean. And of course, I've got my Facebook page, Stories of an Unschooling Family. If you're familiar with my blog, you might notice a few changes there the next time you visit. I did a bit of changing again of my template. I've got a bit of a habit of doing this recently. (laughs) This template has a few features that the old one didn't have. I can now list some posts from my other blogs, especially my Out of My Catholic Mind blog. I've got some family posts and some parenting posts, especially on that blog, which might be relevant to my unschooling blog as well. So with this new template, I can I can list those posts now in a gadget so that readers might like to go over, follow the links, and read relevant posts that are on my other blog, which might otherwise be hard to find. There are a few other features on this template that I really like. There's now the option to comment either through Blogger or through Facebook. And one of the fun features is the emoticons, some beautiful little cool animated emoticons. 
that you can add to your comments or if you don't feel like writing a comment but you want to show that you've visited my blog and just a quick say a quick hello you can just use one of these emoticons and put it in a comment and make me smile that would be lovely which talking of making me smile I'd like to thank all those people who stopped by to encourage me to keep on podcasting and for the people who did go over to my daughter Sophie's blog the techno made last week we were talking about how blogging and podcasting is a learning experience regardless of whether our blogs or podcasts are very popular but sometimes it can be very encouraging when someone stops by to say hello on our blogs or our podcasts it encourages us to keep going and I thank you for that encouragement so until next week I just like to say thank you for listening to this podcast and trust respect and love unconditionally <laughs>